Welcome back to another edition of Relatable. I'm your host, Stephanie Michelle. This is the show where we talk about exceptional human encounters, the people who make them happen and the actions it takes to create them. Now, this is the last episode of Relatable for 2019. And as I reflect on this journey, you know, it's honestly been one of the most important journeys of my life. I've learned how to be a better listener. I have been so incredibly inspired. I've celebrated and been energized through the strength of vulnerability that comes through my guests and ripples throughout to you, creating more connection and opportunity for us to see how important it is to feel this shared spirit that flows through all of us. Mm. The same collective spirit that's required to heal. We are not well as a society, a nation, or a species until all have the same healing available to all of us. As we end this relatable season three, Here's my hope, that each of you know that your story and experiences matter. Don't let anyone tell you that what you feel or see is not important. Stay curious about yourself and others. Don't let fear prevent you from pursuing love of any kind. Keep going, nourish the connections that matter to you, and let your passions be, the form of self, be a form of self-care and the way that you participate in the world to change its course from destructive fear-based action to actions of love. Love for our planet and for all the people that live here and all the animals too. <laughs> Let's correct and create new stories together. As we end this season, I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me a man that's pursuing the details of his own story with the understanding of how to help others like him discover their story as well. Joining us in the studio today is Terrence M. Franklin. He is a seasoned attorney handling, handling trust and estate litigation matters as a partner in the law firm of Sachs, Glaser, Franklin, Lutus, and, and Lutus. Terry recently discovered that his fourth great-grandfather, John, owned his fourth great-grandmother, Lucy. But John set Lucy free with their children and grandchildren in a will from 1846 that Terry's uncle then challenged in court. Those discoveries helped Terry understand that he had a mission to help bend the arc of history towards justice by sharing the story of his family's escape from slavery and other stories like it. In addition to being an active member of the trust and estate community in Los Angeles and nationally, Terry is a graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School. He's also a creative artist, a writer, a storyteller, and a performer. Thank you. Welcome. It's a delight to be here. Yes. <coughs> I've been looking forward to this. For yeah, me too. You t not the end, not ending the season, <laughs> but like going out on a bang, you right. know? Well, thank I, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know some of your details are stored, but I can't wait to hear more. So, uh, Terry, is there anything pulling your attention right now that you just want to put out there before we get into your story? Hmm. Um, well, I just came from court. I had a court hearing this okay. morning, and I've got more law to do this afternoon. So now I'm just trying to be focused on being right here in the moment with you. Perfect. Um, so let's do that. Let's do that. All right. Well, so let's, uh, you know, let's start in the beginning. Like, can you tell me anything about your childhood that kind of connects you to the man that you are today? Maybe. Interesting. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. Okay. Um, had an older brother and uh, parents who were very loving, yeah. and I never doubted that they, you know, supported and loved and cared for me uh, throughout my life. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also knew that um, I had inklings that maybe I was gay. Uh, I, I knew that I was, yeah. but I knew that it didn't fit with what we were supposed to be because we were a Christian family on the south Midwest. side of Chicago, <laughs> yeah. Midwest, yeah. and the 19, you know, I'm 56, so um, there really were no role models. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no highly successful gay black men who mm -hmm. were out there that I could look to as, as role models. Mm -hmm. So um, I had to figure out how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. So instead I sort of um, focused myself on uh, trying to focus on how I could succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to become a lawyer. I sort of modeled myself or at least thought of myself as looking at Thurgood Marshall or Dr. Martin Luther mm -hmm. King as these examples of people who really achieved and who worked mm -hmm. hard to do something. And even though I had artistic inclinations as I was younger too, I would do, you know, theater, write poetry, things like that. But I sort of had a feeling like if I shared too much of that, that somebody might realize that uh, it might be a tell for the fact that I'm gay. Yeah. So I kind of avoided that, sort of put that to the back, but would sneak out every once in a while. And um, went to high school <coughs> in Chicago um, and sort of focused on 
education and, mm -hmm. and moving forward. Um, one of the people I went to high school with was actually Michelle Obama. Wow. Who was, we went to French. We had French class together, and uh, I kept going through high school, then college, and um, uh, spent my junior year abroad in France. And that was sort of an enlightening mm -hmm. period for me because I was ordered able to experiment and try thinking of myself as a gay person while it I was there. That uh, that culture was definitely more open to. It was more open, I think, to the idea of you know. Foreigners or expats, they kind of have a sort of uh, mystique of their own. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to sort of assume that personality and be somebody who was a little bit different in that mm -hmm. year. Um, when I came home, there was an incident uh, where my brother, I think, became aware of the fact that uh, he found a letter that suggested that I was probably gay. My parents confronted me. I had mm -hmm. to deal with that. And uh, in the end, what I ended up doing was sort of saying, well, I think I'm bisexual. And uh, um, sort of found myself on a path of trying to find, uh, you know, relationships with men, with, with women, trying back and forth to mm -hmm. try to understand. And um, it was about that time in 86 that I went to law school. And um, at the very beginning of law school, I, um, the first icebreaker question at the uh, Black Law Students Association gathering was, what's your birthday? And there was an attractive African-American woman who happened to have the same birthday I did. And we fell in love. Mm -hmm. uh, we were married uh, for many years and uh, uh, raised children together. And uh, it wasn't until 2010 that really this urge that uh, I think I'd sort of been repressing mm -hmm. and trying to put aside really came out. And um, by 46, I had to live who I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife ended up, my wife and I ended up splitting up. But um, uh, we have a friendship now that I think uh, uh, is good for both of us and for our children and yeah. we work together in raising our children. And um, uh, after we split up, I ended up really being able to really become who I am, mm -hmm. uh, understand myself better, uh, understand different aspects of mm -hmm. my personality. Uh, I have returned in a way to some of the artistic things that mm -hmm. I hadn't done before that I put aside mm -hmm. because I thought they would be tells of who I was. Mm -hmm. And it was also during that time that I began to um, uh, consider things that were sort of arts or writing related. Um, and um, that sort of led me to the path that got me to uh, this discovery of my family history yeah. that I really didn't know was there. I, I feel like here in this beginning part of your story that you pursuing the wholeness of who you are open that door to go, oh, how, how much more can I be whole? Like, how, mu how far can I go back to really know? I think, I think there is that. And I think there's also sort of a parallel that, you know, I'll probably talk about a little bit later about um, the relationship that existed between my fourth great grandfather, John, and Lucy, the, my fourth great grandmother, that was, you know, I don't know what the relationship truly was. Obviously, he owned her. Mm -hmm. And by our standards and by any definition, there's no consent in that relationship. So mm -hmm. any relationship, you know, any sexual relationship is, is rape as far as we understand it. But I think that people try to find ways within the circumstances that they're in to make do and to make the best of circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I think that's what happened with my ancestors and that I, th I think they had some kind of a relationship that ended up being positive in some way. And at least um, John saw to it that the family that Lucy and her eight children mm -hmm. and her six grandchildren were all emancipated after mm -hmm. he died. And so in that, there is some value uh, in the fact that, you know, at least I choose to believe that Lucy had some agency, that maybe she encouraged John mm -hmm. to make sure that they would be emancipated once he was dead. Uh, and so I see a parallel between that relationship that was in a structure that was constricting with myself, yeah. you know, and as much as I loved my wife and yeah. loved my children and so much of the aspects of our lives together, um, there was a constriction that I, you know, put on myself mm -hmm. that, that I'd allowed myself to live with for, you know, most of my life. And um, like my ancestors, at some point, you know, you have to move through that and, and you try to make the best of the circumstances that you can. And, uh, and since I've become able to appreciate myself and to understand myself better. And, you know, I've met my now husband, we've been married a year now, uh, who's also helped me to open up and mm -hmm. express myself artistically and uh, thought-wise. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's given me a greater perspective on who I am as yeah. a human being. 
do you remember your first thought in terms of you were going to dig into finding out more about your family and your ancestors? Like, how did that start? And what's the first thing that you did to try to find information? All right. So in uh, 2001, we had a family reunion in mm -hmm. Chicago. Our family has them every couple of years. They sort of rotate from mm -hmm. city to city. And uh, like a lot of African-American families, who are trying to find ways to reconnect with one another and to stay bonded, you know, despite slavery and Jim Crow and you know, all of that, mm -hmm. uh, the Great Migration, we would have these family reunions. And I went to one in 2001, and part of the reunion materials included uh, a little excerpt that someone had typed up of a will that they had located in southern Illinois. I think it was probably uh, a cousin of my, of my mother's who passed away sometime in the 80s or 90s. Mm -hmm. and she typed it up on a IBM Selectric with a cursive font, because <laughs> obviously she was trying to create the sense yeah, that there yeah. was something written. Yeah. Uh, the young people were like, what's a cursive font? Yeah, but yeah, you used yeah. to have these little balls that you'd put on a computer, that you put on a typewriter to try yes. to create uh, different fonts. Yeah. And um, this excerpt said that um, uh, I, John Sutton, being of sound mind but infirm in body, uh, hereby proclaim that I own the following property. To wit, a mulatto slave, Lucy, aged about 45, uh, and her daughter Easter, aged about 27, uh, and listing all of these eight children and then all of Easter's six children down to the little toddler, Mahala, who was 14 <coughs> months old when the will was done in January of 1846. Uh, and so this relative had included, or in the family reunion materials, this excerpt. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw it and I thought that was interesting. And, uh, what they cared most about was the names and the ages because that <coughs> would be the lines that they could try to direct yeah. to connect. But when I saw it, I was kind of like, but what was going on with John and Lucy? Yeah. Is there something there? Yeah. Uh, it was curious to me. But I kind of, um, after we came back from the family reunion, I went back to my practice of law. I do trust in estates litigation, um, which is seems ironic, uh, but, uh, but now I believe that that was part of the reason why mm -hmm. I, I found my way to this practice of law. Uh, it was sim somewhat random. I worked with somebody who did trust in estates litigation. They said, if you ever want to do something like this, let me know. I joined that kind of practice in 1992 <coughs> and had been doing it for a while, you know, for 20 years before I realized this was going on. So we had this reunion in 2001. I thought these materials were interesting. I actually, uh, because it listed the book and the page number, where another, where the original document was recorded in Jacksonville, Florida, and where a copy was also recorded in Duval, in um, in Georgia, where mm -hmm. John had lived before. And <coughs> a I little tickle. I don't know where tickle? it's coming from. Sorry. These things happen. I know. Um, <laughs> All right. I think I got it. So in 2001, I called the clerk in mm -hmm. Duval County and I said, "I'm trying to find this will. I have the book number and the page number. Can you help me find it?" And I think a clerk must have said, yes, please send $2 for the cost of the copy. And so I dutifully sent a letter and mailed it off and promptly forgot about it. I didn't think about it. It sort of slipped my mind yeah. uh, until 2014. So, so nothing came. They nothing came. <laughs> they forgot. I oh. forgot. And then come 2014, I had a great aunt who was turning 100. Mm -hmm. And this great aunt was very special to everybody in the family. Her name was Viola. And um, she was born in uh, 1914, uh, an African-American woman. Uh, unlike a lot of African-American people at that time, I think, uh, she actually uh, went to college. She walked, I think they say, four miles each way to Southern Illinois University, which is where she lived, um, um, and got her degree. And she married a man uh, named William Harold Walker, who actually was a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, and uh, she traveled with him to Tuskegee and helped teach the children of other Tuskegee Airmen before they shipped off. Mm -hmm. And they came back, they worked in Sunday school together. He was a principal, she was a teacher, and uh, they uh, adopted a child, but they didn't have any natural children of their own. Yeah. But she was a real matriarch in our family. Yeah. And uh, so she was the last surviving member of, of that generation. And as she was turning 100 in 2014, I wanted to do something special to recognize her presence and what she meant mm -hmm. to all of us. And I was trying to think what I could do that would be special. And I remembered that will, that mm -hmm. little excerpt of that will from 2001. And I didn't remember that I'd sent for it, but I, I knew that I had those reunion materials somewhere. So I 
tearing up the house <laughs> and trying to figure out where those materials are, and I finally found yeah. it. And I pulled it out, and um, I thought, well, I have the page and line number, I'm going to find this document. And by then, I was a fellow in the American College of Trusts and Estate Council, uh, which is a national organization of trusts and estates lawyers who have spent a lot of time in practice, who regularly speak or talk about mm -hmm. trusts and estates issues. And what that gave me was a directory of lawyers from across the country mm -hmm. that I could reach out to and ideally be able to ask them if they could help me with a problem like this. I pulled that directory off the shelf. This is the week before I'm going back to, uh, to Southern Illinois for my mm -hmm. great aunt's birthday. And um, I opened up the directory. I looked for a couple of lawyers who seemed to be about my age and I left messages for two of them. And one lawyer called me back and she said, you know, there was, left me a message. There was a fire in 1901. The Great Fire of Jacksonville mm -hmm. destroyed all the records you're probably not going to find anything. What? <laughs> um, but I got a call back a little bit later from a paralegal at mm -hmm. another law firm. And she said, you know, I'm, uh, I work uh, with a lawyer who asked me to check on this for you. And I told her that I was looking for this for my great aunt's birthday. And I wanted to celebrate that. And I think she sort of got into the story and was intrigued by it. And I said, and I know there was the fire in 1901, so I'm probably yeah. not going to find anything. And she but said, gotta try. But you know, gotta try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she said, well, let me see what I can do. Yeah. So by the end of that day, I had an email from her that said, her name was Ann Tatum. She said, I found, we found a John Sutton file. We don't know if it's the right one, but we should have it by Friday. Remind you, this is the week before I'm going to go back for my great aunt's 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. That Friday morning, I go into the office. I turn on my computer. We found it. We've got it. This is the right John Sutton file, right? So <laughs> like, uh, she says, what do you want me to do? So I call her up and uh, I, I say, you know, take a picture. So she gets uh, her attorney service to go and take a picture of this two-page document. Mm -hmm. And the first images I see are of this red wax seal, which, you know, before the days of licking stick em envelopes, they would just take a piece yeah. of paper and fold it over and seal it with, always a, with wax. That's always fascinating. You look so cool looking. <laughs> always fascinated <laughs> yeah, me. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll digress for a moment because even when I was a kid, uh -huh. I, like, I was into calligraphy and uh, I asked my dad at one point, we were in a store, Crocs and Brentanos in Chicago. Um, they had this little set of wax seals, mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, I would, you know, can I have one of those? And my dad's like, what do you need that for? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, I just want one. And cool. I, I, <laughs> I wish there was a red one. There was not a red one. Yeah. But I got one that was sort of a pink color, uh, so I would like seal cards and things like that with it. So um, for me to then see these years later, so this first image on <laughs> this red yeah, wax yeah, seal, yeah. and it makes me think, Something in my DNA was calling out to me to say, yeah. you got to find this thing. Yeah. So, you know, I see this image, red wax seal, two-page will, and I'm just blown away mm -hmm. uh, because now we have the full language of the will that describes the fact that uh, John had lived in Georgia before but then moved to Florida. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, this really sort of tells something more of a story. Uh, it doesn't necessarily explain what their relationship was like. But the fact that he saw to it that they were freed, mm -hmm. and he named an executor, somebody who would be responsible for making sure that they got to freedom mm -hmm. somewhere. Uh, and as the document was written, it actually included provisions that said that if for some reason the will was challenged or uh, a court found that it was invalid, that um, this man who John had chosen as his executor, mm -hmm. William Adams, was to own the family outright because John trusted that this person would see to it that they would make it their way to freedom. Mm -hmm. So the, all of this suggested to me that there was something more to this story, that there was, a, um, that, that there was love or something that existed mm -hmm. between John and Lucy. So I, you know, I took my images to the family reunion. We shared it with the family. We were all fascinated by mm -hmm. it. And this has been a process of us all learning this thing together. Mm -hmm. uh, my great aunt, who was very busy with things, found it interesting too. But I came back, to, came back to L.A. and I kept thinking about it and thinking about this John and Lucy and what relationship, mm -hmm. was there something? And I wrote an article. Uh, it was called, um, uh, I forgot what it was called, but it, it was for the Probate and Property magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I suggested was that maybe there was something like love that could have existed even through the bonds of slavery. That water, you know, that love like water finds mm -hmm. its path and at some point um, uh, that was perhaps what existed between John and Lucy or at least 
something that caused him to make sure that they would be okay. How were pe how did people respond to that? Well, I'm almost afraid to ask. I know. <laughs> Surprisingly, uh, you know, I, I didn't get much pushback. Good. But I got an email mm -hmm. from a professor at Suffolk University, African American professor, mm -hmm. and she told me that she'd written a book called Fathers of Conscience: Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South, mm -hmm. and um, uh, tracing the path of, of love. I think was the name of my article, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, she said she'd written this book and she had traced all these cases from uh, pre-Civil War era in which white men had left either gifts of property or emancipation to slaves mm -hmm. and after the men died the families would often challenge the wills and would say that the old man was lacked capacity, he didn't know what he was doing, uh, he was unduly influenced, that is he was encouraged mm -hmm. to do this by people who had you know, evil intent mm -hmm. the, uh, and that um, so sometimes the wills would be upheld by the courts, sometimes they'd be overturned, sometimes the Court of Appeals, when the uh, uh, decisions were reviewed, would say, yes, this is what he wanted, but the public policy of the state of Mississippi doesn't allow for free Negroes, so, uh, so we're not going to give effect to this will, and instead these people go back into slavery. So in, in your case, so there was an uncle that. So so you know at that yeah. point I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I you know I, I didn't know anything about an uncle in my family's case, but I thought the story of my ancestors and the nuance of the possibility of what their relationship might have been like um, was something that other people should hear. That mm -hmm. maybe their every that our our sense of black and white and and um, uh, race in this country needs to have more of a, uh, uh, a finer appreciation for the details of it. What, what I'm, what's coming up for me as you're sharing this is, <clears throat> so I know that there's two things that really bind us, right? Conversation like this and experiences, like mm -hmm. going through mutual experiences. So here, in hearing your story, I'm hoping that as these two people lived together, even, you know, they, they lived on the same homestead, right? Mm -hmm. That as they experienced each, other, yeah, you would you can imagine a love growing or, or to be influenced by each other and to understand, you know, deep in your root that it's not right to own a person, you know that 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 there's something wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, at least you know these are your. F at that point, we didn't know whether they were family members. Yeah. You know whether John was related to them. As far as we know, the will says, you know, my mulatto slave Lucy and her children and her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Like there was no acknowledgement mm -hmm. that these were his family. But you know, we know from history that that's likely to be true. Um, but we also know that they didn't seem to have been sold off, uh, but they all seem to be intact there together. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking, how can I share this story and get other people interested in, in the possibilities of what relationships mm -hmm. can be and yeah. what they are? And so I started outlining a novel. Uh, and I decided, you know, I'll tell the story of my ancestors, but I'll make it more interesting. Uh, and you should write what you know. I was a trust and estates litigator for 20 years. I'd done will contests up and down. Uh, and so I thought, let's throw in a will contest, because that'll make it more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'll make up a brother for mm -hmm. John. Mm -hmm. And I'll call him Eustace, because mm -hmm. that seemed like a good old-timey name. <laughs> So I started outlining this novel, and around the same time, um, I had met um, the person who's now my husband, Jeffrey, who mm -hmm. was my fiance, or at the time we were just dating. He had been a Buddhist for mm -hmm. 20 plus years when I met him. And um, so he would chant twice a day, nam myoho renge kyo and this was, uh, uh, it was a dedication to the mystic law of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And so in the morning and the evening he would chant, and uh, I would sometimes join him, sometimes not. It wasn't, you know, I grew up Christian, and so a little, this was all kind of foreign to me. Yeah. But one day, um, he was chanting, and I felt inspired to chant with him. And I know that there's a part of the Lotus Sutra, which is what you're chanting from, when you chant for enlightenment from your ancestors back seven plus generations and seven plus generations forward. And that day while we were chanting, as we were going through that part of the prayer, I felt like John and Lucy were in the room with mm -hmm. me. Like, they were physically, like, it felt like they were physically <laughs> there with me and um, that they were telling me that there was more to this story. Uh, and, you know, when we finished chanting, I told Jeffrey, I was like, I, I, I feel like John and Lucy were here. And he's like, you know, well, that's the mystic law. <laughs> you know, he's like used to it. So um, I, 
I, you know, I felt like I was on this path. Yeah. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, I, you know, he, he, I'd wake up talking, and he'd say, who are you talking to? And I'd say, I don't know, maybe it was John or Lucy. Yeah. So I'm outlining this novel and trying to come up with this story and trying to understand it. And about six months later, I was going to be at a conference in Florida uh, and um, of the American mm -hmm. College of Trust and State Council, ACTEC, that same organization mm -hmm. that I talked about before. And I told Jeffrey, you know, while we're there, let's go see the will. And while we're there, you know, let's videotape it. I think it could possibly be something important and meaningful. And he was down for it. He had done some short films before mm -hmm. and was an artist himself. And so we went to this meeting in Florida, uh, down in uh, Marco Island, which is down at the southern, southwest tip. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about the fact that Duval County is Jacksonville, is like way on the other corner, so I should have made arrangements to fly, but, um, but I didn't. Uh, so you drove Florida? <laughs> Oh, God. My Five and a half hours. My parents live there. Oh, yeah, do they? Yeah, so you yeah. know what, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. I'm like, you drove Florida. It's the longest day. It's the longest But because I knew we were going to have this long yeah. drive, I kind of wanted to infuse it with something that made it yeah. more important. So I had, uh, it was around that time that um, the Equal Justice Initiative uh, that's run by Brian Stevenson, a mm -hmm. civil rights lawyer, who also went to Harvard Law School um, and uh, who was a few years ahead of me, but I was familiar with his work uh, helping uh, death row inmates uh, avoid uh, death. But at that time, they were working on a project to try to create uh, monuments for lynchings. Uh, they had managed to uh, document some 4,000 lynchings that had taken place mm -hmm. between the end of the Civil War and the Civil Rights era. And uh, they had an appendix that you could look at online that identified by county mm -hmm. where all of these things uh, happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told Jeffrey, you know, let's count the lynchings as we drive across the state of Florida and make note of them and try to learn something from them. And the morning as we were about to set out, I think it was March 5th, 2015, I'm in the shower. I think Jeffrey was outside chanting. And I, the water was coming down on my head. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like when I put my finger on that X. Mm -hmm that John Sutton had made in 1846 that set our family free. And mm -hmm. I was like, am I gonna break down? Is this gonna be like an emotional experience? Mm -hmm. What's gonna happen? And in, like, what I kept seeing was this image from the movie Selma that was out then. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've seen it, mm -hmm. but Ava DuVernay directed this film. And there's this one scene when um, uh, Coretta Scott King is going to go visit with Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. um, Coretta's husband, Mal uh, Martin Luther King, is in jail at the time. And um, they're trying to maybe try to make a connection between Martin Luther King's movement and Malcolm X's movement. Uh, Malcolm X had just left the Nation of Islam. And Coretta is talking to Amelia Boynton Robinson. And Amelia Boynton Robinson had been at the front lines mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement. She'd been beaten and arrested and fought and everything. But Coretta, they'd sort of try to keep, it, keep her away from it as protection for the family. Mm -hmm. So she was anxious. and. Uh, uh, Amelia Boynton Robinson sort of takes her arm and these two elegant ladies are walking with their purses and she says, do you want me to tell you what I think about at times like this that gives me comfort? And she said, um, we are descended from people who built civilization, people who crossed vast oceans in the hulls of slave ships, people who overcame terrors and tortures unimaginable, people who create and thrive and innovate and love and their blood is running in you. It's pumping your heart right now. You are already prepared. I don't know why that was in my head, yeah. but that's what I kept feeling as yeah. the water was rushing over me, you know? And I come out and I tell Jeffrey about it and we get in the car, we turn on the radio and the Justice Department is announcing that the, uh, they've come up with their findings on what had happened in Ferguson with Michael Brown's mm -hmm. killing. And so it just seemed like a weighted moment, you know? It was, it, it was yeah, weighted. It feels so we start driving across the state and um, you know, we're counting the lynchings and mm -hmm. Jeffrey's reading about them and these terrible strategy, tragedies about men who came back from World War I who actually had the nerve to buy a car and so yeah. people in the community thought, how dare you have, be so uppity as to own property? Um, and so he's lynched. Mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you think about each one of those lynchings and what it represented for that individual and for that family, and for that whole community, mm -hmm. because it's terrorism. That's what yeah. it was intended to do. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were driving across the state, and 125 lynchings, mm -hmm. uh, we noted in the process of going across the state. We made a donation to the 
you know, a token donation of $125, the Equal Justice mm -hmm. Initiative mm -hmm. for that. Um, but we finally landed and arrived in, in Duval County, Florida. Jacksonville. Uh, and, you know, here we are, these two gay guys. We have our little, you know, jaunty fedoras. <laughs> we're going to the courthouse. And, uh, you know, we're going to go in and see this will. And we go in, and, and as we're going in, somebody's like, yeah, that's the way you do it. And we were kind of like, well, what was that about? Um, we didn't know until later on that Duval County was actually one of the two counties in Florida that refused to issue any marriage licenses at all rather than to issue them to same-sex couples. And this is just months before the big Obergefell decision came down that mm -hmm. proclaimed uh, marriage equality in the mm -hmm. United States. So mm -hmm. I think some people thought that we were coming we in to, to try to, <laughs> we were gonna come <laughs> in and challenge the system <laughs> yeah. or something, but we weren't, uh, <laughs> not till last year. Yeah. So uh, we got through, through security, got down to the basement, mm -hmm. uh, and I'd called ahead and asked to have the will, you know, this will set aside, the file. And the clerks are like, well, we don't see it. Where is it? I don't know. You have to come back tomorrow. We're like, oh, no. <laughs> no Five no, and a half hours. No, We've no, driven no. across the state. <laughs> We're going to see this will today. <laughs> yeah. uh, and finally, they found it on a supervisor's desk. And they pull out this file. It's like the size of a lady's clutch purse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a... So it's kind of rolled, like yeah, you know, it's like a fold-over file, uh -huh. um, much like a like a portfolio yeah. file in a brown color that yeah. you see. But it's got an elastic band on it, and I sit down, and Jeffrey's videotaping me. I take off the band and I open it up, and I pull out this sheaf of papers. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I see is that red wax seal on that envelope, just as I'd seen in the first email that I'd gotten the year before and probably that my DNA was telling me that I needed to track down since I was a little kid. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, here it is, right? And I moved that out of the way and the first thing on top is the will. And you know, this two-page document is there and I open it up and I look at it and, and I'm, you know, I looked at Jeff and I was like, wow. And I, I put my finger on that X and I'm ready for this rush of emotions <laughs> that's gonna overtake me. And I'm not feeling anything. Yeah. And I'm going, why am I not feeling anything? And then I start flipping through the other papers because in my mind there was just this will and the, and the envelope yeah. because that's all I'd asked her to do. And as it turns out, I remember now the paralegal said something like, well, what do you want me to do with the other stuff? And I said, I, that doesn't matter. Just give me copies of the will. Yeah. So um, I had focused on that, uh, but suddenly I'm sitting here and I'm realizing there's a whole file. This there's is the more. will file of John Sutton. So I'm flipping through and I'm recognizing these documents that I'm prepared to understand because I've been a trust and estates litigator mm -hmm. for 25 years and things haven't changed that much in how one practices law. Mm -hmm. And I see the citation to appear and I see the inventory of the assets of the estate and you know, there's ec you know, 400 cows and, uh, you know, there's no, he didn't own any land, um, but I see 400 cows and a couple of horses and household goods and down at the bottom it says, we were supposed to inventory the following slaves, Lucy, her daughter Easter, um, Maria, Mahala, Sarah, Joel, Jack, all the way down to uh, baby Mahala, mm -hmm. but according to the will, they were supposed to be removed from the state, so we're not inventorying them. So that's consistent with what I thought. Mm -hmm. And I'm flipping through, and I get to this one document that looks like, it says petition. And I start reading it, and I'm like, oh my God. There really was a contest. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, what I had believed in my dreams and my DNA, you know, what I was writing in this novel, this contest that I had made up mm -hmm. really did happen. And instead of this Uncle Eustace that I'd made up mm -hmm. with a good old timey name, yeah. was Shadrach. Shadrach. <laughs> Shadrach Sutton. <laughs> it was even more old timey than I could yeah, have imagined. Yeah, yeah. And Shadrach had actually filed a petition challenging the will, saying that John didn't have the capacity, that he was old, that he was doddering in his, wandering in his intellect, that he had been, he was an old man, that, um, that these designs of these persons on him had tried to take advantage of him that they had plied, your, your that, 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 that Lucy had, uh, had unduly influenced him, mm -hmm. and that he'd been uh, plied with ardent spirits. They'd, <laughs> they'd given him alcohol to convince him to do this will, right? <laughs> and, uh, and because of that, the will is invalid according to Shadrach's petition. I'm like, wow, this is amazing, you know? This is the story that I guess I've been living in my DNA mm -hmm. that I didn't know was true. I flipped more. 
And I realized that part of what I have in this file is the transcript of the trial. <coughs> and the transcript is the judge's handwritten notes. Mm -hmm. And the judge's name was William F. Crabtree. Couldn't have made that up either. No, you know. know, it was perfect for the novel. Yeah. So William F. Crabtree transcribes the notes. And so he transcribes the notes that say that um, Gregory Yale, who was the lawyer who drafted the will, mm -hmm. testified that he went to John's house. Um, the, the family greeted him, not the slaves. The family greeted him. Uh, they offered him dinner. He'd had an appointment to come into town, but John had been too sick to make it into town for the appointment. Um, Gregory Yale explained that John had wanted, um, he'd moved to Florida because he thought he could set the family free there. In Georgia, they couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, the rules were much more draconian there, and they believed that Florida would be more amenable because it had a long history of a Spanish tradition, mm -hmm. which was more accepting of mixed races. And there were many mixed race families actually living in the mm -hmm. area that my family ended up in. That's why they went there. They'd heard about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so Gregory Yale said that the reason why John had moved there was he thought he, thought he could emancipate them there. But it was only when he got there he found out that there was a law that prohibited it. So there was a statute that said he couldn't just emancipate them. In fact, the statute said that if you were going to emancipate someone in Florida, you had to pay a $200 fee, you had to uh, post a bond for the value of each one of the slaves for the 30 days that they could remain in the state, but they had to get out within 30 days because there was sort of a tipping point of black to white mm -hmm. in Florida and they didn't want any more free black people walking around in Florida. So they were like, no more. So instead, John had to do this will. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the will went on to say that he was naming uh, William Adams as, ex as his executor to make sure that the family would make it to freedom. I found out later on that William is probably Lucy's half-brother. That Lucy and, and William had basically grown up together mm -hmm. uh, and that when William's father had died, William was too young to inherit property. Mm -hmm. And so uh, John became the guardian for William. Mm -hmm. And so anything William owned, John owned, and that included Lucy. The notes also indicated in Gregory Yale's testimony that at one point, Lucy came into the room. And uh, Gregory Yale asked her, you know, what would you like to do? And she said, I'd just as soon stay here. But Shadrach has always threatened that he would beat us if he ever came to own us. So I need to get out of here. She didn't want to go to a cold place. She didn't want to, you know, but, mm -hmm. but she understood that mm -hmm. in order to preserve and protect and to save her family that she had to go. And so we have these words of Lucy that come through the lawyer's uh, testimony mm -hmm. that's then handwritten by this judge in this transcript that I'm now reading in 2015 that, you know, <laughs> brings me into their world and brings them into my mm -hmm. world and we're suddenly connected, you know, this relationship. Um, uh, and it was just mind-blowing that, you know, that this all unfolded and that, that this is so much deeper than the typical stories that we hear mm -hmm. of black and white and you're slave or you're free. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the nature of freedom uh, and, and it's transitory nature, you know. Yes, they were slaves at that moment, and then they had to make their way from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, the, the story is they got on boats, went down through New Orleans, up the Mississippi to Illinois, where they claimed their freedom. And it was after that that Shadrach actually challenged the will. Fortunately, they were already there. Yeah. And as I continued to dig through the file, as we sat there in the file room in Duval County, I got to the bottom of the file, um, and uh, uh, there was the final decree, mm -hmm. ended on March 10th, 1847 that upheld the will uh, and found that uh, Shadrach's contest was invalid and ordered Shadrach to pay $28.08 in costs. <laughs> so, <laughs> vindication! Um, it was like, you know, this revelation of, of, of history and, uh, and my connection to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that was just like an incredible experience. We drove back five and a half hours, talked to the other lawyers who were there, some of our Florida lawyer friends said, oh my God, you gotta get those records. I'm like, what do you mean we gotta get those records? They said there's a new statute in Florida that says that any records can be destroyed once they've been digitized. Ugh. So I'm like, I don't know how to do that. They went into court, pro bono for me. Uh -huh. um, they talked to the judge in Duval County, and as it turns out, the judge who was making this decision was a descendant of Isaiah Hart, 
who was one of the original founders of the city of Jacksonville. Um, and he said that he recalled a story about a clerk who supposedly took some files, put them on a boat, went into the St. John's River and saved them from the Jacksonville the Great Fire of Jacksonville in 1901. So in, in my mind, these documents, which I now own, were saved because they needed to get to me. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, a whole set of circumstances that had to happen in order for these documents to end up in my hands where I can then share them with you, yeah. you know, and people out there yeah. and share them with the world because I think they tell us something about uh, humanity mm -hmm. um, and about the value of human life. And, uh, you know, as I travel around the country, uh, as I do tell this story mostly to lawyers, but I also tell it to other groups, you know, black history mm -hmm. uh, presentations. And I've also written a number of articles and I'm working on a, um, uh, a screenplay for, uh, it's a, uh, a limited series mm -hmm. about the family's escape from slavery. But when I tell the story, I say that I used to think history was what happened to famous people like kings and queens mm -hmm. or princes and popes, or to ordinary people who did something extraordinary mm -hmm. like Harriet Tubman or uh, John Brown or uh, Martin Luther King even. But what I realized through this process of unpacking this story is that we're living history every day. Um, just, you know, my ancestors who did what they could to try to make life better mm -hmm. for, for themselves and, f and for me ultimately are on the same arc of history with me mm -hmm. and my descendants out there, seven generations mm -hmm. yet unborn. And I think the question for each of us is, what are we doing on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that we're trying to bend that arc of history towards justice? So that's what I'm trying to do in sharing the story and in you know, trying to share it as widely as I can in all the forums that I possibly can, uh, is to try to bend the arc of history towards justice. I've, you know, I've determined that's my mm -hmm. mission, mm -hmm. my, my personal mission it's in It's so beautiful. And, I, I, and I, I'm sure like part of your story, when people hear it, and maybe they've got, tried to go on the same path and, and they didn't know how to find these documents because it's not, I, I, I think people may take this for granted like I, that you can get on ancestry.com and just find your stuff. Right. But in the case of slavery, a lot of the, maybe they weren't like John right. and people destroyed these right. things because they didn't think it was important. There's a lot that's just gone. It's lost to history, to the mm -hmm. Ashpens of history. But, but yes, uh, people come up to me a lot of times and they go, oh, I wish I had that kind of stuff in my life, mm -hmm. you know, in my history. And I say two things. One, it's surprising how many things can be found. Mm -hmm. uh, the technology has improved so much. Uh, the resource archives, you know, we can get stuff through, you know, the Mormon mm -hmm. Church actually has a bunch of stuff that, uh, uh, that's very deep and extensive. And you can almost sit on your couch. I can sit on my couch and read the... Jacksonville News from 1846, you know, if I get to the right website, mm -hmm. and you may end up finding something. But I say to even people who can't find their own, my story is America's story. You mm -hmm. know, this is all of our stories. This is about what we all did, about what our country did. And so if you can't find your own story, mm -hmm. share mine with me, you know, and, and come with me on this journey, mm -hmm. you know, to explore this mission of how we can all try to do better, mm -hmm. how we can all try to bend that arc of history towards justice. So it's been a, this magical process of unfolding and, and, and sharing the story, and then other things have popped up that have told me that I'm on the right path, you know, I... So you're still fighting, looking for information? Still looking for information, still uncovering things, mm -hmm. like uncovering the extensive nature of the mixed race families that lived mm -hmm. in that area. Mm -hmm. It was quite a haven for people who were coming there. There were um, uh, other stories. The first woman executed in the state of Florida was actually uh, a sl uh, former slave. Her family had also come from Georgia to Florida. He'd emancipated them there, but the, this was a horrible man who raped them, raped his daughters, and eventually one of his daughters took a uh, drawing knife and hacked him in the head, killing him. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was executed, uh, becoming the first woman executed in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what would happen to her children? You know, some, you know, they ended up back in slavery. So all of that was part of the stories mm -hmm. that I've been investigating. But another interesting story that people don't know is that one of the wealthiest families in Florida at that time were the Kingsleys. And Anna Kingsley, Anna Majajini Jai Kingsley, 
had been this 13-year-old um, stolen from Africa. Uh, the man who was the ship owner and the plantation owner, Zephaniah Kingsley, fell in love with this 13-year-old girl, married her in some kind of a, a ceremony in, in Haiti, mm -hmm. um, uh, in Cuba actually. But, you know, that was the ages when women would get married, when mm -hmm. girls would get married at the time. But he put her in charge of his plantations and treated her as a wife. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in the end, he left property to her. And after he died, even though she was living in Haiti where uh, he had sent her to be protected from the increasing racism in Florida, she went there with their sons mm -hmm. and they married their daughters to white men in Florida. After he died, she had to come back to the United States to fight to receive the property that she was entitled to and she had to trace back their arrival in Spanish Florida to the time when the treaty that was first done between John Adams as the Secretary of State and Onis, who was the uh, Spanish ambassador, mm -hmm. that brought Florida into the States uh, and to say, we were Spanish citizens, we have the rights of Spanish citizens, and even though there's laws now that say I can't inherit this because I'm black, those laws preserve my rights to inherit. And she did inherit that property. Mm. You know, and so all of these stories are part of, of our history too. And so we've been my husband Jeffrey and I have been unpacking these stories mm -hmm. and so we have a, a, a view for trying to create a, a almost like a podcast or a documentary program where we sort of follow the family's path yeah. and along the way unpack these stories that tell us something about what our history was and about where where we can be you know how we can relate to those experiences and then try to do something that moves us forward mm -hmm. um, and then I was invited to um, to become a history maker. There's an organization called the, uh, uh, the History Makers, mm -hmm. um, founded by a woman named Juliana Richardson, who also happens to be a Harvard alum. And she talks to African Americans and collects their stories, mm -hmm. and it's a, the world's largest African American video oral history project. Mm -hmm. And uh, they record your video. When I first saw the email, I said, oh, it's just three to four minutes, fine. I called back and said, oh yeah, I'll be, I'm happy to do that. They said, no, it's three to four hours. <laughs> So you could do it. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> so I go and I sit for three, four hours, and I talk about you know my story and my understanding mm -hmm. of this history and this past. Um, and uh, I just got a notification last week that it's uh, officially now been uh, installed as one of these videos in the archives at the Library of Congress. And so part of this mission that I have of making sure that my descendants yet unborn, you know, seven generations beyond, it's there. Yeah. This story is there for them, you know, and it connects them to me and me, to John and Lucy, and, uh, and it's there for everybody to see. And uh, so that's a big part of, of what inspires me and tells me that I'm on the right path, yeah. that I'm doing the right things, that sharing this story is vital and important. Yeah, it seems so timely right now. To know, you know, when we, when we, when I think about what I was taught, in school about history, about the history of our country, and, and to leave these stories out of that, just to say, oh, well, there were people that were for slavery and against, and you know, and they fought about, it. like, that's not right. the story. Th like, the story that I'm hearing today is there's always people for humanity. There's always people, like, it, that, that protect relationship, that, right. you know, that do believe in the goodness of each other and, 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 the, and the lives and the heritage, and you know. Um, we need to hear that more. So yes. whatever you do, you know, you've got to keep me in touch. We need to hear <laughs> yeah. that more, yeah. And, yeah. and we need to point out that that there have been creations or recreations of history that that have deluded us from what really happened. You know, we've we've gone places where we see, you know, this beautiful monument to this great tree that was the meeting up tree in Florida. Jeffrey and I were in Florida mm -hmm. and outside the the courthouse of justice. And you know the plaques, which was placed by I think the daughters of the of the Confederacy. You know this was the meeting up tree. The true story is it was a lynching tree. Uh, this was a tree that was used to lynch people. You had to walk under the lynching tree to get to justice. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know they placed a plaque over it that claims that it has a whole different purpose. And you know as we stood there. And I, you know, Jeffrey could feel the pain of the tree that had to witness, you know, these lynchings that took place. And, and I was imagining, you know, a little white girl there with her family and the whole community cheering on this experience of inhumanity. 
and I'm wondering how that scarred, you know, a, a little white girl mm -hmm. who's who's wondering, you know, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. why, you know, what is this barbarism that I'm a part of? And and so, you know, sharing this story mm -hmm. is, I think, to try to, you know, as Buddhists, you know, change that karma to to turn it around to recognize that there were causes made that have these horrible effects, but it's up to us, uh, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. to unpack those stories and to share them with people, mm -hmm. you know, that's the relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian Stevenson says what, what binds us together is our brokenness and, uh, you know, that's where our humanity is and that part of what's important for us is to be out in the world with other human beings relating to one another and not just on our cell phones and in our computers yeah. because it's really in this interhuman, you know, one-on-one -on -one contact or even in larger groups that we really get to the core of understanding who we are as human beings. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's been said on this show and I don't remember who said it, but, <laughs> but that, that you know, you, I, uh, D, sitting behind the camera, we didn't break this world, but the brokenness that we have in it is what will heal it. You know, if we mm -hmm. acknowledge that, mm -hmm. put these pieces together, like we need people to rise up and use their brokenness to help heal some mm -hmm. of these things. So couldn't encourage that more. Uh, we have a couple more things that we yes, get to yes, do because yes. yes. we are running out of do time. This is so we, but you've <laughs> got to stay in touch with us. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, stay I'll in touch with us. I want to hear about how, uh, you know, the evolution of these projects, podcasts, um, film, whatever you do. This is just amazing. And, and the new stuff that I'm sure you're going to keep I'll exploring keep and uh, sharing. But I think this is an appropriate, I think this is the most appropriate time to ask this question after what you shared. So Every guest that sits here, I ask this question, what does this phrase, exceptional human encounter, mean mm. to you? And um, I think exceptional human encounter um, can be every human encounter. I mean, you know, there's opportunities every day. You know, there's somebody that you're going to meet that you don't know what they will, what you can do for them that they can do for you. And it's not a transactional thing. But I think it's like being open to the fact that, that we have this shared humanity. And so uh, for me, exceptional humanity, excep exceptional human encounters are the things that we have every day, the people that we deal with all the time that help us to, to move ourselves forward. And, and with my mission in mind, move ourselves forward to help to bend that arc of history towards Absolutely. justice. Absolutely. So we were both raised Christian in the Midwest, and uh, I don't necessarily consider myself Christian either. I think that my relationship with spirit and God has evolved, but there's one quote in the Bible that always has been my favorite, which is, when two or more gather in my name, mm -hmm. I am there. And I take that as, and I've said it before on the show, that there is opportunity when two people gather in the name of love, because I believe that God is love, you yeah. know, and, and, and just love in their heart, you know, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be for each other, but just love the presence of love that there is opportunity for something beautiful spirit to evolve mm -hmm. between them and it has nothing to do with either person it's just like that connection that thread between us right. that we all have right. like it will surprise you it, you know sometimes it's called grace like that that it's always there and available to you and it has nothing to do with your spiritual beliefs it's just that we do have connection between us mm -hmm. and whatever spark that you know creates that extra little something to happen that is exceptional absolutely and, could Absolutely. be just a look, a story, you know, whatever the case may be. But I, um, I, uh, it's life affirming and energetic when you experience it. And I just wish and, um, everybody has a chance to experience that and then pursue it. Right. You know, and I hope that what I've done with this show is to show that that's available to all of us. Yeah, you know? when you're conscious of yeah, it, then yeah. you can look for it. Absolutely. So the last thing that uh, we get to do together in our time here is, uh, so I, I also uh, am a big advocate of learning, um, as you are, uh, of just creating, uh, just having a relationship with curiosity. And, uh, and I think at this day and age that the, the learning, relating, relational learning is really important. So as we you know, go to the gym and we accept that we work out our physical body to have like a, a different experience, um, I think, having a set practice of like doing this. It could be just a conversation or trying a different conversation on or um, practicing new tools for managing difficult conversations, like whatever we do, we can do to be in better relationships with each other, um, especially in the juxtaposition of a lot of AI uh, coming our way. Uh -huh. uh, I think it's really important. So the way that I do that here is to issue a social challenge of the week. Um, there are little things that 
that are just meant to say, hey, this is not the experience I'm gonna dictate that you have, but just you're gonna have a new experience if you try it, maybe try it with a buddy, but just be open to those experiences. Okay. So I wrote down, I think for our show, obviously something about, you know, um, you know, taking the time to explore your an ancestor in your life. Um, but I, and, and of course there's tools out there, but I, I think if, if you still have opportunity to sit with a grandparent, um, an elder in your family, uh, to ask them questions about mm -hmm. people that they've heard about in their family, and, and even go so far just to say, you know, or tell me about a story that, um, that, that you see in me, that, you, that re maybe this person, mm -hmm. you knew certain characteristics about this person, and when you sit with me, your grandchild, like you see it in me, you know, like ask that question. So what do you think about that? What, what can we add to that? Yeah, I think that's brilliant, you know, uh, asking the people who were there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, I mean in terms of that particular idea or yeah, other ideas yeah. to challenge? I, if you have another one that kind of comes up. I mean just up, the same one, yeah, yeah. It, that, that's part of my goal yeah. is, you know, how, how do you as an individual, how can you think about trying to make the world a little bit better? every day, you mm -hmm. know, in your interactions mm -hmm. with other people? Is there something, an opportunity for kindness? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can make a choice. A kindness is a choice. Uh, and so often people do things that are cruel. Um, yeah. And you kind of go, wow. wow. Could, you have said, could you have done that kindly instead of the way that you chose to? Or can you create value <clears throat> in your day-to-day -day existence? You yeah. know, how, how can we try and do that? I, I think there's something, especially after, you know, what Terry just shared, when you start to do start to listen to the history of your past and you hear about the characteristics that the people had in your life and you connect it to your own story uh, just by nature you i think you get a little extra energy to pursue kindness to pursue love to pursue making a difference when you realize your arc is not alone like right. that that you're on it with other people journeying somewhere and and take all of that you know could take carry all of that with you to go and pursue what it is that you're doing. And I think kindness kind of has to be revealed in that process right. when you're doing that. It's a collective effort, you know. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, so that's the social challenge, you know, and this is really, I, I don't have any living grandparents at this point. Do you have living grandparents? Uh, all of my grandparents have passed away. Yeah. So, you know, take it from two people that don't have them. Don't take that for granted. Do not you know, miss an opportunity to spend time. We're right up against the holidays. This is why I'm breaking. If you have the means to go see yes. an elder in your family, go do it. Go do it. It will make their day. Get their story. Yeah, get their story and connect it to yours and let that be the fuel that, that allows you to go do what you do and, and pursue the things that are going to make a difference in this world. So mm -hmm. Terry and I encourage that. And uh, you've seen his uh, Instagram handle on, on the screen. We'll be sharing all your social media and some other podcasts that Terry's been a part of. So if you take the challenge, we'd love to hear from you, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I love when I hear these stories about people who've gone out and found their own personal family stories and yeah. come back and tell me about it. I bet. Yeah. All right. Well, so that brings us to not only the end of this episode, but the end of the season. I'm really, really glad. Thank I knew you. it. Like, we, we have a mutual friend, Cleo, that's been, uh, he, was not, he was season two on the show that connected us. And when I heard your voice and didn't hear all of this, I just heard pieces of this. I was like, that's a good way to close the season down and you, you you did it well my friend thank you it's an <laughs> yeah. honor and, yeah. and really a delight to be able to be here with you and to to share this story that's that's my mission is to yeah. share the story so thank you for helping me to fulfill my mission i am i'm thrilled that i was here to be able to do that with thank you. you thank you so the you guys know what i'm going to say and uh, you know you've, you got to keep this in your heart for a while because i don't know when we'll start the next season yet but you know the the opportunity terry expressed it i've expressed it through the seasons um, the opportunity for an exceptional encounter is in every moment of your day. And, you know, you're sharing moments of the day that we, all of us kind of take for granted, that elevator ride, you know, the walking to the same location every day to your office, uh, you know, smile, uh, you know, greet people like they are part of your family. I mean, you have the power, all of us have the power to create an exceptional encounter. And it's something that you can do that comes back to you. It's so energy given when you have these experiences with somebody that you're like, man, I feel you. Right. I really feel you, you know? Um, it's huge. Yes, so that's my sign off for the year. Please, please remember to do everything that you can to have an exceptional encounter every day, every moment of the day, and uh, we'll see you in 2020.
Bye. Bye. Thank you.